You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good afternoon, church. Uh, we're going to be reading, to begin with, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, and verses 17 to 21. If you'd like to follow along, uh, it's in your uh, service book at the back, or you can use your phones. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we're turning to Revelation chapter 7 and we're looking at verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul and Clarice. Again, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy and it's a joy to be able to share the word with you today. Now, when I was about uh, six years old, I remember sitting in my car with my mum waiting to pick up my auntie from her shift work. Uh, We were in Adelaide's CBD, and as my auntie came out, a group of about three people started yelling racial derogative names at her, and then they started spitting at my auntie. My mum stepped out of the car to go help my auntie, and they started hurling abuse at my mum too. And for no apparent reason, the group started pushing and pulling my mum and auntie, pulling their hair, scratching all sorts of stuff, physically abusing them, continuing to call them racist names. One even jumped into my mum's car, the driving seat, while I was still back there, threatening to drive me away. Now, as a child experiencing this in the early 90s, it was quite a reality check that people could be judged, treated differently, seen as higher or lesser, all because of the colour of their skin the country they were born in, the culture that they were from. That was my first taste of it. But as I got older, my eyes would be opened to just how prevalent it was in and around the world and even throughout history. You know, in school, I'd learn of the Indigenous people and how countries like ours tragically began. I'd learn how slavery, uh, slavery based on race had only more recently ended in the United States. I learned of ethnic wars, race conflicts, even genocide that plague history. On the news, I would see things like the Cronulla riots, the Rodney King video, the George Floyd trial, the Adam Goods incident. As I got older, I understood the sad reality 
that the first experience in that car with my family wasn't just the one-off isolated incident, but racism does and still exists. Perhaps you yourself have experienced it firsthand, or perhaps you are close to somebody who is affected by past or present trauma living in this country. Or perhaps you haven't dealt with it yourself, but see the injustice and anguish of others who have and want things to change. Perhaps you want to see real tangible reconciliation that will actually help those who are most affected. Whichever it may be, it's clear that race and reconciliation remains a hot topic all around the world and here in Australia. There are big questions that people often ask, like, are societies intrinsically systemically racist? Is everyone racist? What do we make about our history here in Australia? And for us sitting here today, as Bible-believing Christ followers, it leads us to ask further questions, such as, what is my role in all this as a Christian? What is the church's role? How can I best represent Christ when it comes to race relations? And what I love about our Left and Right series is that we're bringing these topics like race and reconciliation to the forefront for the purpose of seeing what God has to say about it. And I believe the Bible has a lot to say about race and reconciliation and how we can make sense of it as individuals and as a community of believers. And as we consider what God has to say about race, I think the best place to start all of this is way back in the beginning in creation. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, this was a key passage used last week, if you remember, from Luke's sermon on euthanasia. And it's just as vital for for our understanding of race. Because what Genesis 1 is saying here is that right in the beginning, God in his infinite wisdom and grace created mankind in his image and likeness and it was good. And it's this in his image and likeness that has set, that has to set the foundation for us as we think about this word race. Because for the Bible to say what God has created, that he formed people, that he shaped each person in that way, it puts significant value on each and every individual. For the person sitting in the pews with you right now, or for every person that you sat next to in your life, God has created each and every one of these individuals, and he's made them in his image. No matter the race, it means that God has created humanity unique among all his creations, with the Hebrew word for image, belasamu, literally telling us we're the visible appearance of our creator, that we are image bearers of God, made to resemble God. And so that person you walk past across the street who looks different to you is made in the image of God. That person whose first language isn't the same as yours is made in the image of God. The person who sees the world completely opposite to the way that you do is made in the image of God. Author and preacher John Piper says, no matter what facial features, skin color, hair texture, or other genetic trait, he says, every human being in every ethnic group has an immortal soul in the image of God. 
a mind with unique godlike reasoning powers, a heart with cap- capacities for moral judgments and spiritual affections, and a potential for relationship with God that sets every person utterly apart from all the animals which God has made. Every human being, whatever color, shape, age, gender, intelligence, health, or social class is made in the image of God. We are all image bearers. And so everyone is infinitely valued by God. And this has to be the underlying principle behind everything we talk about today, which is why the issue of racism is so vile and hurtful. Because at the core of it, racism is this idea and belief that people are not equally valued. The Oxford Dictionary defines racism as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism by an individual, community, or institution against the person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group. What underlines this prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism is the belief that some racial groups are either superior or inferior because of their differences. It's not to... It's to say not everyone was created equally. Not everyone has the same dignity, worth, or rights. It's as if the image and likeness of God is only exclusive for those who look or live in a particular way. But to think like this is to go against what God has said in his word. To think otherwise is to say that that person that God has made in his, in his likeness is not as valued as me. And so when we treat people in a racist manner, what we're essentially doing is not only dishonouring the person, but we're also dishonouring God. To think, speak or act in a racist manner is not only an insult to the person, but an insult to the Lord. To be racist is to ignore the image of God imprinted on that person. It's to disregard another person or people group as image bearers is to distort what God had intended in creating the actual race that mattered to God, the human race. And this distortion is traced back to the fall, which you may have heard of before, which is where humanity first sinned in the garden, disobeying God and consequently bringing on death, judgment, brokenness from God's good creation. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, the curse of sin would taint every man and woman, breaking a once perfect relationship with our Creator, but it also spoiled relationships between men, women, each other. Sin rotting the heart with pride, prejudice, and hate. Now do you see why racism is so wrong and why we feel it so deeply? God created us all in his image, equal value, equal dignity, equal worth. And so to say otherwise is to disagree with what God has created in his good order. But while it's obviously sinful, and I'd imagine nobody here would say otherwise, I think as Christians, we can still get caught up in this distortion of image bearers. Because the reality is, all of us sitting here today, we are all sinners. Romans 3.24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So while we may know that racism is wrong and dishonouring to God, we are still prone to sin, prone to be tempted. Church, we are not immune to think 
act or speak without sin, whether you are white, black, Hispanic, Indigenous Australian, migrant Australian, we are all sinful. And we can just as easily be racist or hateful to one another. For some, it's more blatant, like responding in racial slurs, physically abusing others who are different, like I used in the example earlier, being involved with hate groups that target minorities. Those are more blatant. But for others, and I think this relates more to our own context, it can be more subtle or more hidden. Like, think, I've got some questions to think about. Like, what is your first instinct when you walk into Chinatown or Footscray? Is it positive and celebratory or is it negative and resentful? Where do your thoughts lead when you visit that pub in Outback Australia? Do you see everybody the same or are you making assumptions about another? What conclusions do you make when you hear the news of another bashing or robbery? Do you empathise for the situation or do you predict which people group are at fault? Who have you favoured over somebody else because they were more like you? Who do you tend to blame when something doesn't go your way? When have you made a racial joke that sounded funny to you but didn't sit well to the person who heard it? When have you justified to yourself the remark you made that painted another person poorly? See, I know working through this sermon myself, I struggled myself when reflecting on those questions because I've done every single one of those things. And it really challenged me to think deeper about my own actions because it had me thinking, well, surely I'm not as bad as those hate group guys, but mine are just, you know, all hidden things, all hidden thoughts. And so surely it's not as bad. But in thinking that, I was reminded of Jesus' words who often challenged his listeners to think deeper about their actions. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says that, uh, it is known to, that people knew that it is known to, if you commit adultery, that is wrong. Yet Jesus says that whoever even looks at another lustfully has committed adultery in the heart. Jesus often confronted those listening to think even further, to think deeper. And so he does the same for us, with us, to us, when it comes to the matter of race relations. While we may think to ourselves, ah, I'm not a racist, I'll never be like those people. Jesus, when talking to the Pharisees about what defiles a person, he says in Matthew 15, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. See, while the person yelling out racist profanities on the Melbourne tram may be a clear example of what comes out of the mouth comes out of the heart, Jesus just as well says that what comes out of the heart also comes out of our evil thoughts. So even if it remains hidden in our thoughts, when our instinct is not to view others as image bearers, seeing them as lesser, the reality is it becomes a heart issue. The sin in our hearts has, has distorted our view of others who are made in the image of God. The pride in our hearts has placed us above others who aren't like ourselves. And so that person yelling vile, racist remarks out on the street isn't all that different from the person who quietly holds negative views of particular people groups that diminish their value as humans. So perhaps this is a moment of reflection for you. Perhaps God is pointing out something obvious in how you treat others who are different to you. Or maybe he's asking you to think deeper in identifying where you may have distorted his truth. Whatever it may be, what makes it all quite difficult 
is that a lot of this that I've just spoken about comes from in here, comes from the heart. Again, it's our sin and pride that distorts our view and understanding of other image bearers. Why we're so capable of viewing or treating those who look different to us poorly is because racism or any other sin is a problem of the heart. Our biggest problem is not external, but it's internal. Proverbs 4 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What it's saying is it means that our hearts are the command center of the soul, where it affects our minds, our will, our affections. So we must be vigilant because it's a vulnerable place, the heart. Every day, our natural inclination will be to want to sin, to choose pride over humility, self over other, glory over worship. Because our hearts are so filled with sin, it's no wonder there is so much disunity in this world. It's no surprise that every week in the news you'll hear of race-fueled conflicts, racial injustice, race-based attacks. For a people created to bear the image of God and value others the same, our sin makes it impossible to do so. Our hearts continue to deceive. So what do we do when we can't keep our hearts with all vigilance? What hope is there for us? 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the solution to our heart problem. Jesus is the hope and joy for what sin has tarnished. Where our sin has distorted how we view and value others, Jesus has put an end to this. Destroying the dividing wall of hostility, as read in Ephesians 2, Jesus would care for the oppressed. Jesus would welcome the discriminated. Jesus would love the unlovable. So much so that Jesus actually took on the sins of his enemy, you and I. Dying for our sins, that no matter what race, ethnicity, culture, if you believe Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you are now all united in and through his blood. See, Jesus redeems where we went wrong. By his work on the cross, we all don't just have a common human personhood as images of God, but we have a common redeemed personhood in the image of Christ. A unity upon unity. One that is wonderfully and beautifully diverse. For as Galatians 3 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. By his work on the cross, all forms of racism, prejudice and discrimination that may reside within our hearts is dealt with. If we come to him in repentance, knowing that he promises forgiveness even to the worst of us, that our hearts are made anew in Christ, that in Jesus' resurrection, we are made new. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That because we are changed by Christ, we start to think differently about people. We don't just see people through a racist lens, but we see the beauty of God's image in others. Because Jesus took our sins upon that cross and died the death meant for us, he has brought about a radical reconciliation. 
once in a perfect relationship at the beginning of creation, then alienated from God due to our disobedience, Jesus redeems that fellowship we have with our creator God, a vertical reconciliation between the creator and his creation. To those who believe, we are now reconciled to our Lord. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. This is a reconciliation like no other. One that was completely undeserving and unachievable on our end, which is what makes it so radical. Jesus redeems what we could not. So to those of you who are seeking forgiveness for where you've gone wrong in regards to race relations, know that you are forgiven in Christ and that we have a reconciliation with God. That's the good news. And the good news changes us from the inside out. Our God is a reconciling God. At the core of the gospel is the message of reconciliation, a restoring of relationship. But while it's joyous to hear of the truth of our radical reconciliation with God in Jesus, the question will be asked, how do we then have this reconciliation with each other? when there's so much hurt. And I think God's word will help us better understand what this horizontal, as in with one another, this horizontal reconciliation looks like. Rob Riley, an Indigenous Australian author and poet, wrote this poem in 1995. At the white man's school, what are our children taught? Are they told of the battles our people fought? Are they told how our people died? Are they told why our people cried? Australia's true history is never read, but the black man keeps it in his head. See, reading through some of our history, or even the history of many other countries, uh, is evidently clear that a lot of people groups, for a lot of people groups, theirs is a history and experience of deep pain, trauma, and hurt. There are countless stories of the stolen generation of Indigenous Australians who had their lives taken away from them, African Americans whose ancestors were treated lesser than animals and still feel this way today as injustice runs through minority groups, Jewish families who, completely, who were completely devastated by the Nazi regime, apartheid in South Africa where uh, racial segregation was a way of life and people were class classed by status and value based on their race. There are even countries that had rules and regulations that meant special taxes were le levied on specific races or if you were a particular race, you can't be a resident in that country, which was once the case in Canada. These are just a few examples of the deep pain, trauma, and injustices that many people groups have experienced, all based on the colour of their skin, location they were born, culture that they grew up in. And from many of these examples, understandably, the thought of reconciliation can be difficult to grasp. And from many of the, uh, can be difficult to grasp, sorry. For some countries, there were governments individuals and policies that help bridge the gap between these parties, working towards reconciliation and a better future as past mistakes were attempted to be rectified. But for others, reconciliation remains a complex issue. With a myriad of opinions and solutions, we see all around us plenty of debates and conversations that can be helpful, but plenty that are also aren't helpful. And this definitely feels close to home for us in Australia because the subject of reconciliation with Indigenous Australians remains a complex issue. 
Questions such as, should we change the date of Australia Day or should we all say sorry are questions people still ponder and talk about today. And I'm going to have to be honest here, as an Australian-born Vietnamese person, for a lot of my life, I've felt quite distant to this subject. Outside of my learning about it in, in school, in uni, or, or seeing things on the news, my connection to this topic was not the same as somebody who was, let's say, white Australian or indigenous Australians. We just didn't talk about it in our Vietnamese communities. But even though that may be the case, I know that this was still an important discussion to be had. Because first of all, I'm living here. This country, I call my home. And while living here, even though I may be quite distant from what happened in the past, I am, realistically speaking, reaping the benefits of being here, living here, living off the wealth and proceeds that did come at a cost to an entire people group. But second of all, and most importantly, why this is important, not just for me, but for all of us to think through, is because we are Christ followers, image bearers, who should be at the forefront of horizontal reconciliation because we have experienced the most radical vertical reconciliation there is in Jesus. So we need to be at the forefront. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so as a reconciled people, how do we best be ambassadors for Christ? Where God make, where can God, how does God, how does God make his appeal through us in this area of race and reconciliation? Interestingly, I think this is actually a really good example of how the left and right differ. The left leaning point of view is one that is more collectivist, that all, that we all have a shared identity and responsibility. And so the problems and solutions are seen in a corporate lens, while the right-leaning point of view is one that is more individualistic, where the issues and ways to fix it are driven by taking ownership or tough love, where problems and solutions fall on the individuals or own people groups. And I actually think both sides have something to teach us, but also something to learn. And to begin thinking through this, I think the loudest voice right now in Western society is that coming from the left. This is the position that puts an emphasis on the entire structures of society. Think critical race theory or movements like Black Lives Matter that believe racism is ingrained in the total system, that the system is flawed. And so the solution is to work collectively, tearing down structures, overhauling the system, that there is a corporate responsibility to make amends. And in a biblical sense, there is some wisdom in this position because what we often see from those in this camp is Christians on the front lines fighting for justice, which is what the Bible tells us to do. Like in Psalm 106, it says, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. There's also this emphasis on compassion that is clearly visible. Colossians 3 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's as if there's a real empathy that extends to others where people are often empathizing with those who have been terribly hurt by past or present traumas, feeling for the marginalized and hurting with them and for them. 
But while there is wisdom in this position, looking at society around us, there's also a lot of things that we need to be wary of. A lot that is not only unhelpful, but perhaps even unbiblical. Because when we start to think that everything is racially corrupt from the top down, that the entire system is flawed, the temptation is there for us to point fingers, to shift blame. So much so that something that something as delicate as guilt and innocence becomes something that is determined and valued by society. Now, let's say, for instance, critical race theory, which is an ideology important to many from this position. What this theory essentially says is racism is everywhere, built into society's structures, systems, and institutes. It suggests that people of color face oppression in every single realm of society, and that this systemic racism can only be faltered by the hands of white people. And if you say otherwise, you yourself are a racist, or if you're a person of color and you say otherwise, then you've been so brainwashed and indoctrinated by the oppression that you are blind and yet to see. Can you see the dangers here? What this ideology is essentially doing is pinning any and all forms of racism on a race. That if you were white, no matter what, you ought to have this guilt bestowed upon you. And this ideology can't be challenged in any way without you being demonized. Now, by no means am I saying here Anglo-Australians or white Americans are completely blameless when it comes to racism. But when we start pinning sin on entire people groups, we need to be cautious because what starts to happen is we begin, we begin upholding guilt and we begin upholding innocence. So much so that the message of the Bible becomes blurred. Because the message of the Bible is one that tells us that we are all so sinful beyond comprehension that we are all guilty. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Which is why we needed the good news of Jesus in the first place, the only innocent one to come rescue us from our guilt. What ideologies such as critical race theory or movements such as Black Lives Matter can do is take the emphasis off the only one who can redeem this in full, Jesus, and put it on and put on this unwarranted guilt on people that has already been paid in Christ, as well as put an unhealthy innocence on people who need to know the gospel. Neil Shenvey, author and apologetic from the Gospel Coalition, says, This stance is particularly dangerous because it undermines the function of Scripture as the final arbiter of truth, accessible to all people regardless of their demographics. If a person from an oppressor group appeals to Scripture, his concerns can be dismissed as a veiled attempt to protect his privilege. And we can see how this unwarranted guilt and unhealthy innocence plays out in society where culture makes you feel guilty for being a particular race or guilty for not being a particular race. So you feel pressured to change your Facebook profile borders, swayed to sign yes on petitions that you don't even know what you're signing, guilted into marching into protests. And so as Christians, we're tempted to take part in this virtue signaling over actually taking action. I remember doing this myself, posting a black box on my Instagram a few years ago, thinking that I was caring for what was happening uh, in America at the time. But after posting it, what did I do? 
I just went back to regular life, unchanged in any way whatsoever, virtue signaling at its finest, living out Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 6, which, which talks about practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, yet God sees what goes on in here. And for many, there's this unhealthy innocence where the danger of adopting a racial victimhood becomes prevalent, where all throughout life you will view yourself with the perspective that you are a victim and deserve better. So every bad thing in your life is the fault or result of somebody else, blinding us to our own sin and need for repentance. Vody Bockham, an African-American preacher and author, says in his book Fault Lines that victimhood actually weakens the black community and discourages finding actual solutions to their social problems because they remain in a perpetual cycle of finger pointing. To sum it up, I think the biggest temptation for those on the left is to make horizontal reconciliation so imperative that the vertical reconciliation gets lost, that we can get so swept in the collect, swept up in the collective culture viewpoint that the, at the very core, the very core of the gospel becomes blurred as sin becomes narrowed and forgiveness becomes impossible. Which leads me to the other side of the spectrum, those on the right, who, generally speaking, tackle the issues and solutions in a more individualistic approach seeing racism as an individual problem, that structures aren't the problem, but individuals are the problem, that the best approach is to leave the situation to the people group from where the issue comes, that people need to sh show a bit more resilience and work harder themselves to fix what needs to be fixed, in a way, a tough love approach. And just like the left, there is some good wisdom that comes from the right position. And the one that stands out the most, I think, is that of personal conviction. Because the right position tends to put a big focus on the individual. When it comes to sin and wrongdoing, there is an emphasis on really taking responsibility of one's own misgivings. That people ought to take ownership of where they've gone wrong or hurt others. And so the emphasis falls on the individual that problems and solutions sit rightly on the person. And there's something quite powerful in this because I think when people grasp the importance of individual responsibility, it offers the clearest, most genuine path towards a real, deep personal conviction, which then often leads to a real, deep personal transformation. I think of a testimony I read from the Gospel Coalition of a man named Jeff Fuller, who for most of his young life was a neo-Nazi skinhead, taking part in all sorts of evil and wickedness against other racial groups. But it wasn't until one day he saw the deep pain he had caused himself to other people. He saw the great depravity in himself that he knew he needed saving. And so he turned away from that lifestyle and now goes to jails to share the gospel to other racists that share those cells. This is a great example of the kind of personal conviction that can lead to a true individual repentance. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, where he talks about the sin that dwells within himself and his desire to do right, but not to have the ability to carry it out. He's fighting to change, but he senses his old sin rising up in him, but he knows the change can only come from the conviction of the Spirit through Christ his Lord. That is the only true transformation that can come. Not the kind that comes from a kind of political correctness of society or a virtue signaling or peer pressure from the world but a personal conviction 
That is what brings about true change and transformation. If you truly feel the sin of racism, you turn from sin to God with the full purpose of new obedience, a true individual repentance. But it can also be terribly unhelpful when the temptation then becomes to be so focused on personal repentance that you ignore corporate repentance. Because I think there is value in thinking about it collectively. The Bible does describe God being concerned with the sins of communities, such as the people in the Old Testament or the sins of the church in Corinth. And while the Bible does not say we are responsible for the sins of others, which it's clear we are not, the fact is this country that we reside in has benefited off the pain, loss, cost of others. And so together, I think there ought to be a genuine regret that for how things were done, there ought to be acknowledgement and recognising of what has happened. But for many, they can't even fathom the idea of acknowledging the past, let alone, uh, let alone acknowledge the past hurt or regret the history that has played out. See, the great danger for those on the right is that this individualistic mindset becomes so convincing that they eventually only think about this individual, yourself, and not about others. So you lack compassion for those who are hurting. Become non-empathetic to those who have experienced generations of racial trauma. Disregard people's experiences because it's not the same as yours. Tough love that becomes, uh, that begins to lose the love and in the end just becomes spiteful and hateful. Become so focused on the individual that you'd rather not engage with society, but instead stay in a bubble and let others deal with the problem. Like if you remember recently when the whole Black Lives Matter wave exploded, on the opposite side was this voice saying, yeah, well, all lives matter, which as I've talked about in this sermon is absolutely true. As image bearers, we, are all inf- we all infinitely matter to God and have equal value and dignity. But here was a moment where clearly a people group were hurting a people who had gone through great trauma before, still feeling the effects of that. And I'll always remember an analogy used from one of our members here at Melbourne West, where this quote felt quite quite close to home to him, that it's like a house on a street is on fire while the rest of the street isn't. And while this house obviously needs help in this current moment, the other surrounding neighbours run up to the firefighters and go, yeah, 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 but what about my house? My house matters too. See, the biggest temptation for those on the right is to view vertical reconciliation as the only thing that matters, that horizontal reconciliation becomes irrelevant. Reconciliation is such an important topic to the world around us. Both sides of the left and right spectrum have those who care and those who don't. We can have those on the left who prefer virtue signaling, while just as well the right can have those who prefer uh, self-centeredness over compassion. But as Christians, we not only must, but we are called to care when it comes to reconciliation. Even if how we go about, even if how we go about it may differ from each other, we care because we have a savior who is the great reconciler. With Jesus, 
redeeming what sin has marred in race. The reality is we are still on the side of history that is waiting for Jesus to return, that things are still incomplete as Christians and the church waits. That means we're still residing in a world that is broken, a world where tears are still shed, trauma is still felt, racism is still frequent, but the Bible tells us that we can rest assured that Jesus will indeed return. And when he does, God will bring about a new age where evil is defeated, sin is no more, and creation is restored. And it's in this restoration that those who have a saving faith in Jesus will be in Jesus' presence forever. Where Revelation 7 paints a beautiful picture of what that will look like for eternity where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see the genius of how God has willed this, that what God created and we corrupted and Jesus redeemed, we will all come to fruition when every tribe and every nation together are in joint worship, in the richness of unity, in diversity together. And so whether we lean left or we lean right, it's this image of restoration that ought to shape how we think about race and reconciliation because it reminds us that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many times we say sorry, no matter how many injustices take place, there will always be more and solutions will always require more. Things are still incomplete because we live in a world not affected by racism, but we live in a world affected by sin. So we need to point people to the only one who will bring an end to it all. The only one who can actually give peace, hope, and justice in the end. We need to point to the great reconciler, Jesus. And because we have been reconciled by Jesus, it doesn't mean that we sit around on our thumbs waiting for this Revelation 7 picture to just suddenly appear, to suddenly happen. But because of the gospel, because we know of the grace, forgiveness, reconciliation that we know we have in Christ, it moves us to be proactive and engage with those around us. The good news that has been extended to you is the good news that you must extend to others. So as Christ's ambassadors, we are called to be empathetic, compassionate, gracious to those who are suffering. As Christ's ambassadors, there is good in acknowledging where you've gone wrong, recognising the past, listening to stories, lamenting with our neighbours, engaging in culture, pursuing justice, bridging the gap between God and the world. In John chapter 4, Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman is the perfect example of this. Because around then in Jesus' time, Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews hated as half-caste and treated with hostility. Jesus breaks, but Jesus breaks the cultural lines, talking to her, which was culturally unacceptable from a man to a woman, let alone from a Jew to a Samaritan. Jesus cares for her by breaking down any racial, cultural, uh, political or religious divides, going to her first, 
with a radical showing of compassion and empathy that she has likely never experienced before. And it's in their conversation that we see Jesus' ultimate concern. His concern was for her soul, that he wanted her to never thirst again and to know the living water that was him, the Saviour, Jesus. Jesus shows us the wonderful example of his far-reaching compassion that would lead people to know him and worship him. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, The Secular Creed, says, We must pursue love and fellowship across racial and cultural differences relentlessly, not because progressives tell us to, but because Jesus calls us to be one body with people of different races and cultures and languages. Worshipping Jesus together is our destiny, but it is also becoming our reality. So to us, the church, let us be at the forefront of this subject. Let us be the greatest example to the world outside there now. Let us be that visible preview of Revelation 7. And what a joy it is that when I look out on our congregation I see that glimpse of Revelation 7. We see, the worship leaders see that all of us, tongue or whatever tongue, whatever nation we're from, singing and praising God, that is what eternity will look like in full. Because where the rest of the world refuses to forgive or refuses to confess racism, we have the gospel that radically speaks into both. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you that you are a God of forgiveness and hope. In the work of our Saviour Jesus, we have been reconciled to you. And we thank you that in Jesus, the walls of hostility that divide us from each other are torn down. But Lord, we also pray for forgiveness for all the times we have sinned against you and how we think, act and speak. Forgive us for the times that we have treated others as anything but image bearers. Help us, Lord, be a community of compassion, care, faith, justice, and love. May your spirit help us in working together towards horizontal reconciliation because we know of the great joy of the great reconciler that we have in Jesus. And Lord, help us fix our eyes and our future hope, the moment where we get to all stand in your presence, all tribes and nations, a beautifully diverse creation, worshipping our gracious, almighty creator, What a God we have in you. May we live for you faithfully that the world may see your goodness and your grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.